Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 186 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's midday on December 8th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesman. I'm Steve Vladek. Happy Safe Harbor Day. <laughs> Yo, 5 p.m., 6 p.m. today, uh, the Electoral College results are locked in for any state that's certified by this time, meaning that Congress cannot later challenge them. Well, I, would, I, I wouldn't go quite that far, meaning that it would take both houses of Congress to agree to later challenge them, which ain't happening. That is definitely not happening. So uh, uh, there, there, there are a lot of things that are definitely not happening, Bobby, and that are still making the news. Yes, they are. Um, and some of them we should talk about. Let's give a quick run of show. Um, All right. Well, first, the Giants are still in first place. They might be Giants. Even even with the very surprising victory by the Washington football team yesterday, the Giants own the tiebreaker by virtue of having swept their season series with the the Washingtons. So, well, you know, the Washingtons. I like that. Uh, that you know what? That's got a lot of potential. They should the Washington Washingtons. No, nah, just the Washingtons. I like that. <laughs> like it's like a family. Like we're the Washingtons. <laughs> Who's coming over to play today? Oh, the Washingtons. We got Bushrod. We got George. Um, uh, uh, well, uh, look, I'm with yeah. you on the Giants because I mean I can't tell you what a thrill I got out of watching. I didn't watch the whole game, but I watched some of it so I could watch Colt McCoy back in the saddle. <laughs> and let me tell you, you've got me on your, especially with the Cowboys sucking so badly. You've got me on your side as long as Colt McCoy is at the helm of the Giants. He threw for like he threw for like a hundred and some odd yards. What an awesome game manager he was. <laughs> he really hey. <laughs> He got the only stat that counts at the end of the day. He got the W. Uh, Fair enough. So yeah, All right, but there actually is stuff happening. There is stuff happening uh, in Trumplandia. So how oh, do God. we anticipate what may occur today, which is an executive order that we're told might drop today to try to fix the potentially catastrophic fiasco of failing to secure enough doses of the Pfizer vaccine to prevent a uh, interruption of the rollout towards the end of the first quarter this year, if it turns out that the Moderna and AstraZeneca vaccines aren't online at that time to fill the gap. So we're going to talk about that in the role of the Defense Production Act and Article 2 and that sort of thing. Um, and then while we're in Trumplandia, we've got election litigation to check in with and and a new one. Steve, what what is... Uh, what is Ken Paxton, our Texas Attorney General? What is he up to now? When I woke up this morning, I did not think that my day was going to involve talking about the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, but here we are. So late last night, the state of Texas, for reasons that defy all comprehension, um, filed a motion for leave to file an original bill of complaint directly in the Supreme Court against four of its sister states. And, and Bobby, not not a random four of its sister states, but... <laughs> Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Um, and what is Texas suing them over? Uh, border dispute? No. Water rights? No. Texas is pissed off at how those states administered their elections and believes that those states have administered their elections in a way that's unconstitutional. Rawr. Rawr. <laughs> Steve is fired up. We will check in with Texas. I'm not fired up. I am offended. I am offended that my tax dollars are being used by uh, multiple indicted felon Ken Paxton um, to waste everyone's time and to further perpetuate this preposterous narrative with, you know, crazy town statistics and unsubstantiated factual allegations about how other states ran elections. I'm I'm offended that people who claim to be devout defenders of states' rights and federalism don't actually believe in states' rights and federalism as soon as it ha as soon as something happens that they don't like. Maybe you'll like the uh, Pennsylvania litigation more as Ted Cruz volunteers to argue it before the Supreme Court. How about that one? The only reason why I don't like that less is because I can't possibly give any positive value to the to Ken Paxton nonsense, which I, I'm sorry, I can say one nice thing about the Ken Paxton suit. The one nice thing I can say like an Al Franken that, line. You know, what he well, said? I've got something else. You, you the know, one nice thing I can say about Al Franken, what he yes. says, yeah, okay. 
Go ahead. Yes. Sorry. The one nice thing I can say about the Ken Paxton suit is that Kyle Hawkins, who is the Solicitor General of Texas, and in that capacity represents Texas before the Supreme Court, did not sign any of the briefs in Ken Paxton's latest uh, escapade, which is not an accident. Right. No, that's right. All right. So we, we have some Scotuslandia that intersects with <laughs> Trumpuslandia. Did I just coin a new one? Trumpus? Trumpuslandia. I kind of like that. Trumpuslandia. Um, but then while we're at the Supreme Court, we will check in as promised with a non-Trumplandia uh, case. We're going to talk about uh, the, the Cuomo decision, um, from, which we promised last week we would, regarding the uh, the limitations on, on size of, of participants in the room for religious services in New York City and um, what the court had to say about that. So we'll, we'll break that down a bit. And uh, I suspect we'll, we'll try to focus, I suspect, on maybe the Gorsuch's concurrence and the business between him and the chief and others relating to Jacobson, but maybe more broadly. Um, and then turning our attention, we'll have a quick note about the apparently looming nomination, indeed, of Lloyd Austin, uh, retired General Lloyd Austin, to be Secretary of Defense. We really covered that last week, I think, adequately. We did. Look at us. We were ahead of the curve. Yeah, we, we saw that coming. No no big surprise it was being talked about. But we covered the civ mill relations aspects and the uh, the statutory limitation on um, service members who've not been out for seven years, um, taking over what is meant to be the civilian leadership of the Defense Department. So I don't think we're actually going to go further into that. We'll just reference back our prior episode. But we what we do have that's new the National Defense Authorization Act has emerged from the conference committee process. Loads of stuff in it. We'll, we'll pick a few things and, and cover at least some of them. Maybe we'll maybe we'll save our and very loud threats from the president to veto it. Right, and so we'll talk about both what's in it and uh, you know personally, Steve. I don't know about you, but I think this thing's going to become law whether he vetoes it or not sooner or later. I, I- I was pretty sure about that until this morning when like 37 House Republicans said that they're going to vote against it, which might actually deprive the House of enough votes to override. Mm. Well, but I think if it, at the worst, we'll see it early next year then. Um, although <laughs> we'll, we'll get to all that. And then for frivolity, I think we'll talk, of course, about the newest Mandalorian episode. So we'll save the spoilers until uh, until then. Now, uh, wait, I got I got one more thing to say, though. What's that? An announcement. Um, so you may have seen this on Twitter. Karen and I, against both of our, well, mostly, yeah, now both of our best interests, um, are launching a new podcast. That's what you need, is more podcasts. Actually, I, just, I mean, I, you know, Tell, lay it out there. So the, the podcast is called In Loco Parentis, although the I is in, is in parentheses, yeah. which I, I think is like doubly meta. Um, and it's basically a podcast where, you know, Karen and I are going to talk about the, the, the challenges we face in, you know, two lawyer family, two lawyer parents, you know, crazy stressful jobs with crazy little kids and how you try to balance everything. Um, I, I have no idea how it's going to go, but much like this podcast now in episode 186, you know, I figure we'll give it a shot and see, see if it takes. I think it's awesome. And the, uh, the, uh, logo is super cute. Gotta check that out. Now, are you guys planning to have segments where your kids get to speak? I don't think, not, not yet. I mean, you know, Maddie helped us do some sound checking, but I think we're actually going to have to record at night because that's the only time <laughs> we'll be able to get away from it. Just remember, um, everything you guys say can and will be held against you by them one day as they exactly right. try to figure exactly out right. like, what happened this one time. Um, but the, the you know, so so anyway, the first episode is going to drop next Wednesday. You can find us on Twitter at, at in, I-N, loco, L-O-C-O, parents. Um, and it'll be available through hopefully all of your favorite platforms. Oh my God. Have you, so, have you guys been figuring out like uh, theme music and such? We're, we're working on it. You know, I'm Karen, Karen's the, Karen, Karen's the, Karen's the brains behind the operation so, on the bra. So, so, like so it will have good production value. I take it. Unlike us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, hey, anyway, real quick, let's invite listeners. If there's something about our production value that you think, You'd love to see improved or changed that's easy? Let us know. We're- so our production value sucks right now because we're doing this on like, you know, or, I mean, I'm we can do so much more to improve our production values, Bobby, when we're actually in the same room together. It's doing this remotely when neither of us have like a formal proper podcast studio in our house makes us difficult. I feel like I was just thinking like what we've got now is is 
because we had to bulk up with for teaching from home with all the yeah. stuff we've got. This for me is like so much better than what I ever had before. Well, let's jump into it, shall we? Trumplandia. Category one, vaccine fiasco. What's going on here? What's going on is that uh, the United States has a contract with Pfizer to acquire 100 million doses of its, uh, I guess, now approved or today, or this week, to be approved vaccine. And uh, that's with, given you have to have two doses per person. That's enough for the first 50 million people. Um, and the report is that the Trump administration has recently gone back to ask for more and was told, get in line behind every other country because we've got commitments now. We can get to you guys at the end of the second quarter. So June, July, um, or maybe later. And some of the backstory here is, of course, that Pfizer's not the only vaccine maker. Moderna is hot on their heels. AstraZeneca's hot on their heels. There are other vaccines, and the administration has reached similar agreements, I think, 100 million at least for Moderna. Um, now, that, that too is not enough. But if all goes really well and if we're fortunate, then by the time we're nearing the completion of distribution of the first 100 million from Pfizer, one would hope we're then smoothly rolling directly into the distribution of the Moderna doses. Uh, and, and if that runs dry, then AstraZeneca doses and so on down the line. I mean, I know there's other vaccines coming as well. So maybe, maybe uh, we'll be all right in the sense that we're not going to have unnecessary downtime where we're just waiting for further production and distribution. But my understanding is that most other countries that have been on the ball have more than insured, you know, we're talking about like double, triple, quadruple the needs locked in by contract in advance. So they don't get in the situation. So there's no doubt. And it seems the Trump administration is anxious enough about it that there's reports the president is going to issue an executive order today that will perhaps try to compel Pfizer to uh, push everyone else from outside the United States to the back of the queue and add a new contract with the United States uh, to number two in line so that, we, so that we are the next up after our first 100 million doses. Obviously, this will have significant diplomatic repercussions. It's one thing if we'd done that to begin with. It's another thing to uh, shoulder our way to the front of the line. There will, be, there will be angsting. There will be consternation. But for our purposes, the question is, is that legal? Can he do that? Which probably would have been a good, a good name for a podcast to be launched. Probably is the name of somebody's podcast. Can he do that? Um, um, the, Washington, the Washington Post had a podcast for a while about Trump that was called Can He Do That? Oh, that's brilliant. Genius. I must have seen that somewhere. Um, all right. So I'll tell you real quick my top level take, and then we can dig into it. But I'm interested in your top level take too. Um, I certainly do not believe this can be done as a matter of Article 2 inherent executive power. Uh, the question is, has Congress created a statutory authority that can be used here? And I do think the Defense Production Act probably can be used in this way. Um, and I'm happy to unpack that in a second. But Steve, what do you think? I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's why the DPA, I mean, it's not why it's, it is, it is deeply in line with how the DPA, what, what the DPA was meant to do. Like, I, I think, I, I don't think it's an unreasonable reading of it. It's just the politics of this are so disgusting. Yeah. So, so here's, here's the relevant part of, of, uh, the DPA, it's in uh, Section 4511A, um, Allocation of Materials, Services, and Facilities. The president is hereby authorized, one, to require that performance under contracts or orders, other than contracts of employment, which he deems necessary or appropriate to promote the national defense, shall take priority over performance under any other contract or order, and da 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 da. So there, there is. If you're not, if you're new to the DPA, you might think like, "Well, hold on, wait a minute. How is this really about the national defense? That seems like a strained interpretation." But the DPA itself, uh, in Section forty five fifty two sub fourteen, defines national defense pretty broadly to include homeland security, stockpiling, da, 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 da. And there's been all sorts of DPA activity in the past, uh, you know, six months after a really inexcusably slow start. There has been a lot of DPA activity that's all about um, securing supply of vaccines, et cetera. So this is in line with all that. Um, now, there there is this wrinkle. Um, what I just read you talks about moving one contract with the government up into the queue in front of everyone else's contracts. 
the whole point here is we don't have that second contract with Pfizer yet. Right. That's the problem. So you actually have to do two things under the DPA. You've got to compel Pfizer to contract with us to produce this, which the DPA also can allow. And then in doing that, that new contract gets bumped up into the line so that it's the next thing after the first already contracted 400 million doses go out. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, now, are they going to understand how to write the executive order to do that and do it the right way? Uh, I think so. We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a bit of a hash once it comes out today. Um, but I don't... A hash from this administration? Surely you just. Yes. We're all out of hash. Um, anything else to say on the vaccine fiasco that uh, hopefully will be averted by this? And let, let me be clear. I really dislike that they created this situation through uh, inartful management of the the contracting process. On the other hand, uh, I am glad and, and I want them to take steps to fix it as angry as this is going to make other nations. Um, I, I'm, I personally am happy they're going to try to do something to, to fix their error. I, you know, I, once again, had this been handled correctly in the first place, we wouldn't be in this in this catastrophe. But that's, I mean, you know, we take that to the extreme, and and we wouldn't even, you know, how how different would our COVID statistics look today if the administration had taken it seriously and loudly and publicly from the from the inception, or even currently? Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> wait. You, you mean you mean you mean the president is still not actually taking COVID seriously? I, I can't believe that. Well, you know, he's been he's never worked harder. I'm told over the past few weeks. His golf game's getting really good. Isn't that such an admission against interest when, when like his people say he's never worked harder, like and after the election he lost trying to convince states to overturn the results? I mean, like, what was he doing beforehand? Hmm. Well, uh, so speaking of trying to undo the results of the democratic process, uh, oh, God. much to our surprise, as you already laid out, uh, the attorney general of Texas, Ken Paxton, uh, surprised many of us uh, today by filing a request attempting to invoke the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court for a... a that a, old chestnut. What's that? Yes, yeah, indeed, that, that old, old chestnut. chestnut. That, that Marbury-esque chestnut. In this case, in this case, um, suits between states uh, as a general category, a part of the court's original jurisdiction. But Steve, lay some Fed court's knowledge on us how does it work? The discretion of the court to say, no, thanks, don't care to have a proceeding on that topic. Uh, when, when, if ever, do they accept these sorts of things? What's going to happen here? Apart from the merits, we can get to the merits. I think we agree the merits are, are lacking entirely. Um, but just in terms of how the attempt to invoke the jurisdiction works. <sighs> okay. Um, so long story short, the, the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction um, original and exclusive jurisdiction in suits between two or more states. And the original and exclusive means not just that a state can go right to the Supreme Court, Bobby, but that when the defendant is also a state, it must, right? That Texas cannot sue other states in like Texas state courts or federal or lower federal courts. Um, the idea behind this jurisdiction was that the it was actually one of the core reasons why the founders wanted a Supreme Court, because they thought it would be helpful to have a, a forum that could resolve interstate disputes. Um, and the sort of the idea was this would actually be one of the most sort of significant uses of the Supreme Court. Um, that has waned dramatically over time. The Supreme Court actually today hates original cases because it asked the court to act as a fact finder, uh, which is not really what they like to do. I mean, we're down to a point where the court hears on average less than one original case every term, um, right? And usually, Bobby, those are like old school original cases where like Texas and New Mexico are fighting over the Rio Grande, right? Or, you know, border disputes or like New York and New Jersey fighting over who owns Ellis Island. Um, there has been this uptick in the last few years in states trying to sue other states for what we might think of Bobby as more traditionally like political disputes, so one example was when Nebraska and Wyoming tried to sue directly in the Supreme Court, Colorado, when Colorado legalized marijuana, um, right? Texas brought a lawsuit earlier this year against California, um, trying to challenge uh, various travel restrictions California had imposed on its state employees, um, right? So there's been this uh, increased effort to get the Supreme Court to use its original jurisdiction to take like ordinary lawsuits. The Supreme Court, Bobby, thus far has resisted. 
um, right? That even though the court's jurisdiction is exclusive, the court does not believe it's mandatory. The court believes it doesn't have to take these cases. And so a state like Texas has to ask the court for permission by filing something called a motion for leave to file a bill of complaint. And five justices have to agree before the case can ever go forward. Um, This is where the Texas case comes in. So the Texas case is Ken Paxton, and as we said, not Kyle Hawkins, the Solicitor General, suing uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. And the basic claim in the suit is that the way those states um, change their election laws violates the federal constitution, and therefore all of their electoral results should be invalidated. And and is there anything to that claim that hasn't already been litigated in federal court as to each of those states and rejected. No, and, this, and, and that's more than just a descriptive point, Bobby, right? So the, the key for folks who do not spend their days studying the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction is that one of the patterns in the court's docket is claims that can be resolved in the lower federal or state courts will be let will be left for those courts, right? That the court's not going to use its original docket to hear the kinds of claims that other courts could hear, even in cases, Bobby, between other parties. Right, that the court thinks of its original docket as only for cases that are uniquely original in the sense that they really can't be brought anywhere else, even with other parties. Bobby, private parties aren't going to sue over water rights on the Rio Grande. Right? So um, the, the reality is, first of all, there's no merit to these claims. Right? I mean, at one point, right, Paxton makes this assertion about how there's like a one in four quadrillion chance that Biden would somehow win the presidency given what Trump's leads were at 4 a.m. on election night, which is just incoherent. You mean, um, you mean at one point while we were still counting votes, you know, Trump was ahead. You know, actually, the Cowboys season and the Longhorn season, for that matter, looks a lot better if I can just kind of measure the wins point. based on whatever point in time we were ahead. But just a, a slice in time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but procedurally, I mean, even if you think Texas has standing, and I don't see how it has standing, um, it's just that there's no reason why the Supreme Court, even if they were sympathetic to the merits here, would want this because what's to stop tomorrow these states turning around and suing Texas for how Texas does COVID regulation, for how COVID does gun regulation? I mean, it's just these are the very kinds of floodgates that the Supreme Court has been um, historically wary of opening through its original jurisdiction. The other thing to say is these cases also take forever. I mean, I mentioned the case that uh, that Texas filed in February against California. Bobby, that was filed in February. The Supreme Court still hasn't ruled on the motion for leave to file, yeah. right? So this is not actually a serious attempt by Ken Paxton to get the Supreme Court to throw out the election. The president thinks it's serious. He's tweeting up a storm about it. You know, this is the one at long last. Uh, the uh, they've abandoned Steve. They've abandoned the Kraken. And they've gone. They've jumped the kraken. They jumped the kraken, and they've. Jumped- we have jumped the kraken. I thought it was Paxton jumping the kraken, but I think I think Trump has jumped the kraken, and he's landed on Paxton. I'm very confused by what's happening here. Um, all right, so I agree. This is this is this. It is a completely laughable merits case. It's completely preposterous to think that the court would would. Uh, intervene in this way. I don't think they will, but uh, let's count heads. I mean, you'd have to have five five votes to take it and five votes, of course, to accept the arguments. I think it's pretty obvious they don't have five votes. Do you think they have one vote, two votes? Well, will anyone so- dissent from the fifth? Because it will come to a head at some point before Electoral College certification in Congress, right? They'll have to, you know, they'll, they'll say, we've got to, we've got to know. And at that point, the court will make clear what it's going to do, I think, or, or make clear it's not going to do anything. But somebody might. Well, so I think, I, think, I think we have to tie this together with what's going on in Pennsylvania, right? So um, Congressman Mike Kelly, right, has a crazy lawsuit in Pennsylvania where he was basically trying to argue that Act 77, the Republican passed state law that expanded mail-in balloting, violates the Pennsylvania Constitution. Um, that lawsuit was thrown out by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on latches. Right, the idea that he had waited too long to bring that suit. And Kelly now has an emergency application pending in the U.S. Supreme Court for a writ of injunction pending his appeal, basically asking the U.S. Supreme Court to freeze the results in Pennsylvania pending his appeal. Um, Bobby, the briefing on that is now complete. Pennsylvania filed their response this morning. And so it's possible the Supreme Court's going to rule on that pretty soon. That's the case where Ted Cruz so graciously volunteered his services. All right. Um, and I want to say two things. I want to say one thing about the merits. And I want to say something else about the court. So on the merits, let's be clear what they're arguing. Their basic argument 
is that a state law violates the state constitution and the state Supreme Court's refusal to say so violates the federal constitution. Hmm. Now, there's one slight problem with that argument, which is that the authoritative expositor of the Pennsylvania Constitution is not the U.S. Supreme Court. It's the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So they're basically asking the Supreme Court to hold that the U.S. Supreme that sorry they're, they're asking the U.S. Supreme Court to hold that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court violated the federal constitution when it did not hold that a state law violates its state constitution. That is insane. That's and that's, that's even that's insane. Right even if you, I mean, even if you think Bush versus Gore is rightly decided, and even if you're sympathetic to Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurrence in Bush versus Gore and the so-called independent state legislature doctrine, this is the opposite. The legislature enacted this law. This is not a state supreme court overriding its legislature. This is a state supreme court following its legislature. So it's a so anyway, hail mary pass. It's 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 bad on the merits, but you know, as I've uh, I was talking about somebody the other day when they, they made a comment, they're like, God, these, why don't they realize like none of these are going to work? Well, that depends on what the definition right. of work working? is. Is You're assuming, or my interlocutor was assuming that work means that they are trying to actually win these cases. I'm sure they'd love to win, but I don't think that's really ultimately what's the big game. This is a fundraising operation. It's, it's a grift. It is a perhaps uh, historically unprecedented in scale grift. I believe that the uh, the fundraising operation is approaching a quarter billion dollars raised uh, in the name of fighting the uh, the election results and trying to overturn the results. And the amount of that actually spent in that activity is pretty minimal, relatively speaking. And you know the te- all you need is to keep refreshing, the, the, the candle flame of hope for those who think somehow there's going to be an intervention by the court and this will this will be another round of that. A whole bunch more money will get raised. It's revolting. It's revolting and it's also like, I mean, whatever happened to federalism? I thought we cared about states' rights. Um, so, so the question is, what is the Supreme Court going to do and when is it going to do it? it to my mind, the best thing the Supreme Court could do is just quickly and summarily deny Kelly's application and then sit on this crazy Texas thing and just otherwise stay out of this nonsense. Um, What will the court do? I mean, I think that depends on whether anyone's going to dissent. And at least with regard to the Texas case, there are two justices, Thomas and Alito, who have written in the past that they think the Supreme Court actually does have an obligation to hear state versus state cases. Um, and so they may dissent just on those grounds, but of course they have to understand that such a dissent is going to be seen as like this massive vindication of the narrative. Right, so right. I just, I, you know, I, as you know, I have a lot that there, there's a lot that the conservative justice on the court do with which I disagree, but I think we're past the point of doctrinal disagreements. I think it is incumbent upon the Supreme court to do whatever it can at this point to stop indulging this nonsense. Right, and to and not to stop allow the, its institutional theory. credibility to be uh, harnessed in in favor or appropriate of, it doesn't have to produce it's not that it it's not just that they need to not actually you know change the results of the election it's that they need to avoid steps that will continue to kindle this corrupt flame um yep. now in in that respect obviously the the chief as the the sort of the institutionalized keeper of the the ultimate charge for making sure that we're watching out for the court's institutional credibility over time. I think it's interesting in that respect that he and uh, Justice Gorsuch pretty chippy with each other in the Cuomo uh, case. So shall we turn our attention now to the Cuomo case? Yeah, it just, I mean, it feels like turning from like, you know, I don't know, it, it almost feels frivolous to talk about substantive law at this point. But yes, let's talk about the what Catholic Diocese of New York versus Cuomo. Yeah, I was actually kind of feeling the opposite. It's like talking about all the frivolous litigation. Let's talk about Let's talk about an actual case where there's real disagreement about real things that are actually happening. Um, all right, so uh, we've got the uh, we've got Governor Cuomo's red zone, orange zone um, set of constraints on uh, parts of the city and in course that have hotspots and corresponding limits that are defined as for a red zone, uh, no more than the lesser of ten people 
in the building or is it 25% occupancy for the red zone? Something like that. And then the orange zone is no more than 25 people or 30%, 33%, whichever is smaller. And you've got both uh, uh, a synagogue and, and the Catholic archdiocese uh, challenging this. And it, it, a rabbi and a priest walk into a bar. <laughs> right, right. A rabbi and a priest walk into the Supreme Court and, and obtain from the majority uh, preliminary injunctive relief, suspending enforcement uh, on these terms of those constraints. Now, there's a whole aspect of the case that I think is not actually that interesting in the grand scheme of things about whether the issue is moot, because by the time it got to the court, the zone categorization had changed for the time being in those areas. Um, I think that's a huge deal. I, I, I think it's not important, but it, to me, it doesn't raise issues that are like recurring sort of national security type issues. No, but I mean, listen, I mean, let's be clear on the procedural posture, right? This is not a stay because, right, the the plaintiffs lost in the lower court. This was a request for the Supreme Court to reach out and enjoin the governor of New York while the appeal is pending, which, Bobby, historically requires an even higher showing than an emergency stay pending appeal. It seems to me that if you're not currently bound by the restrictions you're challenging, then it's hard to make out the irreparable harm part of the of the standard. Well, so the majority says the irreparable, th- their answer to this is, this is capable of repetition, evading review type stuff. Where which is, which is why it's not and moot. Off and- but, but that's why it's not moot constitutionally, right? That's why the court has the power to decide the case. That doesn't explain why the, the that's, that's not the same thing as saying the plaintiffs have therefore met their burden of showing irreparable harm. Is the idea that anticipation of a reasonably likely prospect, if not certainty, of, of the same harm, which would otherwise be there, let's stipulate it would be harm if the uh, red categorization or orange categorization was in place at the time, if it's reasonably predictable that it's going to come back and keep toggling on and off in a way that the court would never quite reach, is that not enough or is it at least – is at least not unreasonable to say that in that circumstance, you can treat it as harm? The question in an injunction is whether is whether there's a reasonable chance you're going to win on the merits, right? So now we're actually multiplying reasonable by reasonable. Is it reason? Is there a reasonable ah, chance that reasonable? Is- no, reasonable squared is like a lower. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> Just with you. the. Listen, I, I believe there, I believe this case was not moot. I believe as a constitutional matter, the fact that this was capable of repetition evading review is why the Supreme Court had the power to hear it. But there's there was no evidence in the record that Governor Cuomo was going to um, you know change the restrictions or reinstate them. Um, if he did, right, it's pretty clear that these guys could have come marching right back. So before we even get to the merits, this is just yet further part of how we have blurred and diluted the requirements for emergency and extraordinary relief, where now even the the possibility that something you challenge that is no longer on the books might be reinstated down the road is sufficient to create irreparable harm. I mean, that's insane. No, I see, I see like, the just, distinction you're drawing. Let me ask this. Um, would, it, would it have been better had they framed it all as a request for declaratory judgment? Yes, or damages. Yeah. All right. So let's... So, Agree, agree with all that. Let's now talk about the the way. And, and by the way, and, that, and that's a big part of the chief's dissent as opposed to the Sotomayor dissent, right? I mean, I, the reason why I ra- the reason why I, ra- I raise this is because in a very very rare solo dissent, yeah. right, the the chief justice's principal objections are on the mootness. Point. No, I think that's right, and and I think it, he tries to make clear that he's probably inclined on the merits to agree with the majority, but he just thinks that. This is not presented. There's no, there's no, there's, right. We haven't met right. the burden. And I, I don't disagree with that, actually. Um, my only point is that, all right, that's interesting. And you have to understand this to understand the case. But in terms of the types of issues that are in play here on the merits, that that's a separate issue. So turning to the merits, um, the dispute is, well, it's not entirely clear to me exactly where they're joining the issues. But the majority is saying that there is a free exercise problem here to the extent that they are claiming either by dint of purpose or effect, and the, and the procurium opens by talking about discriminatory intent, citing some statements, but then kind of quickly, without without firmly planting that foot on the ground, moves away from that and says, "Well, but anyways, even if even if it's not discriminatory in intent, the effect is discriminatory because the." Uh, the religious institutions are not included in the essential services category. And that's where the variation, I, if I understood it right, that's where the variation is. 
correct? That you've got secular institutions of, of all sorts that are exempted from these rules. And yes. if you accept that one way or the other, that gets you an inequality of treatment, the majority says, therefore, right. we're applying strict right. scrutiny and the tailoring okay. test is fair. So if, if you accept that the relevant secular institutions are similarly situated to the housing worship, then yes, there is at least there there is there is significant. I, I'm still not sure I agree with the majority, but, but at you least see what they're saying. You see what they're saying. I see what they're saying. But boy, is that a big if? I mean, so you know, there's a passage in the what? What does Gorsuch, Gorsuch talks about? What bike stores, right? Yeah. Um, I want to yeah. find the passage. Buying a bike, right? Yeah. So page two of the Gorsuch concurrence, right? At the same time, the governor's chosen to impose no capacity restrictions on certain businesses he considers essential. And it turns out the business the governor considers essential include hardware stores, acupuncturists, and liquor stores. Bicycle repair shops, certain signage companies, accountants, lawyers, and insurance agents are essential too. So at least according to the governor, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it's always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike, or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians. And then he makes a pun, right? Who knew public health would so perfectly align with secular convenience? Oh, you think that's um, on purpose as a pun? Yes. Is, is yes. that a is that like a chiropractor's type joke? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And like and acupuncture and anyway. So let's be clear, okay? I have been to you know religious services at my temple, and I've been to bike bicycle repair shops. I do not usually spend two hours in a bicycle repair shop, standing in close proximity to hundreds of other people and singing. I mean, that's just me. Maybe, maybe Gorsuch does. Maybe, maybe Gorsuch goes to you know very communal, you know, musically oriented bicycle repair shops. Well, so a couple of different pieces I want to pick on there. On the singing part, my understanding is the the synagogues and churches have a lot of constraints, including not singing, and that they're obeying all sorts of public health constraints. So, the, to me, the the sensitive point that you do raise is. What about the time you anticipate reasonably people would spend in the building? We're talking about an- in an indoor space with with maybe poor circulation. Maybe, but again, as as some of the majority, either the majority or maybe the Gorsuch concurrence talks about embracing, you know, open doors, open windows, etc. So let's. I think we should stipulate that the, the synagogues the and churches involved are taking whatever reasonable steps we would expect them to, including um, significant spacing, not crowding, but spacing of people. So then the question becomes, is it enough to say like, yes, but these are places where people are going to come in there not for five minutes, but for at least an hour or something like that. Um, and I think the problem th- that makes sense at first blush to me, but then I think the fact that there's no time constraint on these other ones means that for that bike shop, you you could, if you wanted to shop around in there for an hour, hour and a half, there's, I think nothing in the rules that would prevent that. So I'm not sure how useful it is. Yeah. That, I'm not sure how useful that is as a distinction. There's a okay. Well, so I, I have two or, points. To say. The first is, if they said in the essential services restrictions, if they built in timing limitations that locked in, that that would indeed be a difference between the two. That's fine, but but then but the, so then we get to the barter fight, which is in the middle of an evolving pandemic, right? Do we require the government to be precise down to the jot and tittle, right? Do we actually, you know, is is any regulation that doesn't perfectly uh, distinguish between every single type of business establishment, right, for, you know, perfect reasons, constitutionally invalid? And this is where I think, you know, the chief is going with this discussion of Jacobson. I just think, listen, the, the notion that the state was singling out religion as such when, you know, and that that argument requires us to treat religious sanctuaries as tantamount to bicycle repair stores and restaurants, right? I just, I, I think that, I mean, as, as, as Justice Sotomayor points out in her dissent, I think that radically underappreciates the very different public health harms that, Bobby, I'm not making this up, that state officials identified and that the district court in fact-finding that is usually warranted deference credited. Right. And so the question is, who's in a better position to make those kinds of factual determinations, the state public health officials, the district court, right, or the Supreme Court on an application for emergency injunctive relief with no briefing the, and no argument? The, so the majority accepts and I, I think everyone accepts throughout the court that there's a compelling government interest here. They disagree. Does on the majority what, believe that? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's actually a line in the in the procuring that says there's no question there's a compelling government interest. It's a purely tailoring analysis. Um, I think that the fundamental problem is disagreement 
what I'm hearing is disagreement that it should be a strict scrutiny scenario because you're not convinced that there is a, a non-neutral rule here. And I, I think no, it's not that. It's that I'm not convinced that the relevant businesses are not are similarly situated. I'm not convinced that you can say that going to a church for a religious service is the same thing as going to a bicycle repair shop. And so, well, to I'm me, the Gorsuch, notion- I think Gorsuch would agree with you. Only he would draw the opposite conclusion from that, right? He'd say, yes, it's much more important to do the former than the latter. No, no, but the, but this. This is exactly what frustrates me about this entire case, which is that's not the question. The question is, could the state have a non-constitutionally offensive reason for treating those two different activities differently that is not somehow violating the religious liberty of members of these churches? And to me, the answer is yes, because those do not present the same risk vectors. And that's not my view. That's the view of public health officials. It's the view of the relevant elected and publicly accountable state executive officials. And it was the view of the district court, which actually took evidence on the question. On your model, are you just, I want to understand you, are you applying rational basis review or are you thinking in terms of strict scrutiny? So to me, right, in equal in this kind of analysis, the strict scrutiny applies when you can show that two similarly situated groups are being treated differently. Right. So you're talking about right? the trigger because for free exercise. The the question yes. of do we have a neutral statute or do we have a non-neutral not statute, but neutral government action or a non-neutral right. action? Right. Do we even get to strict scrutiny? Uh, listen, I, nothing survives strict scrutiny. Once we get to strict scrutiny, you know, uh, a COVID restriction that is subjected to strict scrutiny is going to fail because it's never going to be precise. So I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I absolutely don't agree with that. I think some things survive strict scrutiny and that and, and even, I mean, and even that, the, the majority says, I think, or Gorsuch, who writes the strongest of the opinions, says, like, I, I can even imagine that, for example, if strict scrutiny had applied to a vaccination type thing, when he's talking about Jacobson, he uh, says, I can imagine that it would withstand that. Which I certainly think it should. You think compulsory vaccination survives strict scrutiny? Okay, um, I, I I think we're gonna I think we might be be, be testing that in about you, a year. You but don't think leaving it that aside, no, leaving that aside, not with this court, but leaving that aside, there's still the threshold question of whether these are actually similarly situated. And I just I'm sorry, but I do not accept that going to a religious service is similarly situated to going to a bicycle repair shop. And I don't accept that in the face of countervailing factual determinations by the relevant state officials and by the district court. It is not Neil Gorsuch's job to say, I feel differently, therefore I'm voting for injunctive. So are you saying that because of, just to unpack your reason for drawing that distinction, are you saying it because of your assumptions about the time people spend in those places? I'm saying that because I believe that the it's I'm saying that because the the relevant government officials are making generalized assumptions about the time people are spending in those places and are creating you know rules because you need rules based on those generalized assumptions. Are there exceptions? Yes. Could I spend seven hours in Uncle jo- in Mellow Johnny's bike shop? Sure. Um, that would be a weird way to spend a day. Um, but the point is that the average person is not going to. And therefore, the notion that the state might treat those two things differently is not somehow insidious in a context in which they are different on average. Yeah, I guess like, the majority's position is. So what this highlights is a lot of the discourse we're having right now and the disagreement we're having is just the sort of thing that once you've decided what tier of review you're under, that one of the utilities of having the rational basis model versus the strict scrutiny model is it helps you resolve these kinds of questions by disposing you either to be in deference mode or to not be in deference mode. But here we're having to have that kind of discussion as a prelude to determine which mode we're in, which is part of what makes uh, free exercise neutrality analysis so tricky. Again, the wild card in the factor in, in maybe or maybe not we'll ever actually see something on the merits. I mean, who knows if they're ever going to get there. But the wild card in it is the initial statement by the per curiam that, that they think that it may not be necessary to look to the comparison of what's in and what's out. It could be you could look to the statements by the officials involved and identify animus in those cases. Oh, we're going there? I, well, we already went there. In my initial set of the case, I said that the majority identified that as the first basis for treating this as non-neutral. But then they they seem not to have the – they seem not to want to fully rest on that because after saying yeah. it, they then kind of – pivot very quickly back away from it and and i wonder why maybe it's because two years ago many of these same justices refused to look at the statements president trump had made with regard to what he called his muslim ban in upholding the constitutionality of the travel ban and as justice sotomayor points out on pages four and five of her dissent it's rather preposterous that the that the same justices who would not look to the president's statements 
in finding animus in a government policy that looked like it was targeted against Muslims has no trouble looking to an executive official statement when it's animus against Catholics and Jews. I completely agree that the approach should be the same in both cases. It was wrong then not to look to Trump's statements, as as I think you yourself felt. And so yes. it would be wrong here not to look to those statements as well. I just no, that's that's not how this works. Uh, listen, it, it was you wrong. Then. You were just making the argument that they should be the same. Yes, but the court, but the court, but but I lost that one. And so the court, if the court is going to do that, it should at least be consistent. Because the alternative is it looks like you know when presidents say bad things about religions we like, or when presidents or governors say bad things about religions we like, oh, that's going to be a huge part of our analysis. When they say bad things about religions we don't like, fair. That's not religious liberty. That's not free exercise. That is. Uh, Judeo-Christian hegemony. So I agree that the ruling should be the same both ways, but the fact that the court did it the wrong way in the past, I think is a terrible reason to lock us into doing it the wrong way going forward in all cases. Fine, then let, then let the majority say we actually think we were wrong in Trump versus Hawaii. <laughs> I'd love that. That'd be great. Okay. But they don't. No. And that's, so they're here. Well, they, they had like, you know, two lines about this. Um, all right. So I guess we've aired our disagreement over that pretty well. But, but, but I, mean, I think it's worth stressing. But so, but so now what's happening, so listen, I mean, we're not going to convince each other that the other one's right. That's fine. Um, it's worth stressing, though, that now what's happening is the court is taking all of these other challenges in other states to COVID restrictions that are t- that are based on um, sort of that, that are impacting religious exercise. And they're remanding them to the district court in light of this opinion, when the whole point of this opinion is that what Cuomo was doing was unique. Right. And so now we have this weird phenomenon where the unique idiosyncrasies of the New York regulations, right, where bicycle shops were treated differently from churches, where, you know, Cuomo said these nasty things like, you know, why should that bear upon the analysis of a Colorado case? I don't know, but the Supreme Court's doing it. So, yeah, we'll have a lot of a lot more litigation bubbling up, no doubt. Now, to, I think we both agree that to a certain extent, this is all sort of the warm up before the the action that's probably coming in 2021 where you've got a prospect, uh, and we don't yet know what sort of leverage will be put on people to induce vaccination, but for the crowd that doesn't want to be vaccinated, surely there will at least be some context. I don't know if it'll be flights or access to certain locations, probably schools are an obvious place, where there will be attempts by people to litigate their their liberty not to get vaccinated. Um, and I, I do think we'll probably get some cases bubbling up to the court. I don't know that those cases will present in a, I guess you're going to have some people claiming religious exemptions. I'm not sure they'll present in a way where the Cuomo uh, analysis really directly would speak to those kinds of cases though, do you think? No, no, but the broader fight between Gorsuch and the chief over Jacobson, I think is going to come back, right? That's where I I wanted to go. Originally, I thought that's maybe what you mainly wanted to talk about, because I think that's very interesting. Gorsuch seems to be at great pains to talk down and diminish Jacobson, which has, you know, first century been sort of just always cited as the standard citation for the breadth of uh, governmental authority uh, in terms of the, the strength of government's interest and, and the ability to override the otherwise existing decision to control bodily integrity matters. Um, Gorsuch goes to great lengths to say, like, look, this is this was a a, a, a very unique, narrow to its facts sort of opinion. And he's drawn a clear, kind of picks a fight with the chief about this. And the chief fights back a little bit. It, as I said earlier, it was a little bit chippy. You think there's any there there that there's going to be this sort of uh, if and when we get to basically anti-vaccination cases in 2021, the Jacobson will will not receive majority support for application in vaccination type cases? I, I'm skeptical. I, 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 mean, I think the question is, what, what does Jacobson stand for? I mean, Lindsay Wiley and I wrote a long paper um, in you know the Harvard Law Review this summer about how Jacobson was really misunderstood, um, and that like you know Jacobson is not just an excuse to just blindly defer to governments during public health emergencies, but the flip side is just as true. Like the opposite of Jacobson is not strict scrutiny for everything, right? The opposite of Jacobson is not you know all government actions during a public health emergency are inherently suspect, and I think the the problem is that what we're seeing is. Judges like Justice Gorsuch, who are grabbing on to everything that's you know wrong with Jacobson, which is old. I mean, Jacobson's pre-Lochner, right? Um, are 
are you are then flipping that over and taking it too far to say, therefore, we are justified in being hyper vigilant in all things, ignoring the fact that there really are some pretty good arguments for deference um, to at least some factual determinations by government officials in a public health crisis. So, I, yes, I think we are heading for a huge fight over Jacobson. And I think you're probably right. It's going to be in the context of vaccination. We're not going to have mandatory nationwide vaccination, but perhaps we're going to have you know, you must be vaccinated to get on an airplane type rules, right? Or you must be vaccinated to enter a federal government building or something like that. Well, like, surely there be some, some state and local instances of trying to, to leverage it very hard to where it's where it's very costly for people if they want to hold out. Um, yep. And those will get litigated. But my liberty. But my liberty. Um, so we already talked about the nomination of General Austin. And again, we've we've previously covered that on a prior episode. So we're not going to go into that again here. Uh, why don't we uh, take a run through at least a few? It's short on time now, but let's talk about at least some of the NDAA stuff. Yeah, we got a little carried away on the on the. No, that general. was great. You know what? Hey, we found it's supposed to be part of the show that we disagree about stuff sometimes. And uh, maybe this is an emerging sign that once we're past Trumplandia, I mean, Trumplandia, of course, isn't fully going away, but maybe we'll find more stuff to actually disagree about so we can actually model disagreement um, more effectively in 2021. Uh, NDAA stuff, I don't know if there's anything we'll disagree about here, but just to touch base with, let's consider this our first engagement with the NDAA, which, by the way, the the president's threatened to veto it. And uh, as you said earlier, it's not 100% clear that there will be uh, super majorities in both houses to override the veto, although some think there will be. Um, I think some version of this, if it does, if it does somehow get vetoed and not overridden, I assume they'll come back to it in the new Congress and somewhat quickly, maybe uh, generate the same bill or something like it, but maybe all bets will be off. Some things that'll probably be the same, though, I think we've got the standard issue Guantanamo provisions. Uh, anything strike you as different than before? It looked at first pass all like a rehash of the same stuff to me. So the transfer restrictions didn't go anywhere. Um, and indeed, I think the the fact that the Republicans made such a big deal out of the fact that even with the Democratic House, the transfer restrictions were still in there tells you how much that's still a big issue to them. Um, you know, I, I was a little surprised um, that the... There was there was this effort to um, there's an effort to move um, to to sort of clean up the recusal the the question of contempt that had come up in the Judge Spath General yeah, Baker Alan and that got case. cut during the conference and that got cut in conference it, it, it passed the Senate bill it was not in the House bill and the Senate receded. So I wanted to ask you um, about that. What? How do you decode yeah. that? What? Why did that not make it in the bill? What I decode from that is that the Senate conferees it was just like so. You know, usually when you go into the, the conferees have lists of things that they have uh, hills that they're going to die on, hills they're not going to die on, right? And so provisions that like you know, because when there's when a bill when when one bill has a provision and the other doesn't, or they're different, right? You got to figure out how much room you're going to give and how much you're not, and they're it's horse trading. Um, and so to me, I take that as a very strong sign, Bobby, that the Senate conferees just didn't care enough about the military commissions to make that provision a priority. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, so there's a common theme between the first two pieces, the Gitmo theme and the military commissions theme. Um, people don't actually care. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Well, no, the common theme being like, no one particularly cares enough about it to fight over trying to, to change the status quo. There you go. Um, the, the, the one thing, so this wasn't, this never actually made it into the final house bill. So it wasn't really a matter for the conference, but I do want to say some folks were surprised not to see, um, Mikey Sherrill's um, uh, proposal to reform 32 USC 502F, the National Guard, uh, sort of the quasi-federal, quasi-state National Guard deployment authority that, in my view, was abused in June in D.C., um, that had actually fallen out before the House even passed the bill for reasons that are still not clear. But I do think that there's a lot of talk about that being on the table for next year's NDAA. And I hope that I hope that it's at least discussed. Maybe that's a good example of the sort of thing where if Trump does make a veto stick on this thing and people have this idea that I kind of had that in the new Congress in January that under under Biden, we would just have the this NDA reintroduced quickly, green lighted and get signed. Probably a lot of people would take that opportunity to refight some battles. And so maybe it would end yeah, up. There'll be a different house and a different Senate. Right. And it'll end um, up just being the next NDAA and they'll give up on this one altogether. Which, you know, could have all kinds of negative repercussions. Um, so we should talk about Trump's veto threat. So Trump has Trump has said he's going to veto uh, the NDAA. He's focused on two, two things in particular, Bobby, right? One is the inclusion of the name changing language that, you know, we're going to change the names of Confederate bases. Right. Um, and the other is the absence of. A repeal of Section 230 of the of the, of the Communications Decency Act. 
So um, which which was something he decided he wanted ridiculous. like last night. Not too ridiculous for Lindsey Graham. No, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's has anyone he's a brave I mean, has one. anyone is can you think of a Republican politician whose reputation has taken a bigger hit from Trump than Lindsey Graham? I mean, even I used well, to think Julian, of Lindsey Graham. But, did he have uh, yeah, Julian? I mean, was talking beforehand. Like they're in that I mean, category, like, though. Yes. Like when Trump was elected, I feel like a lot of folks saw Lindsey Graham as like a, you know, a straight shooter who didn't always do the right thing, but at least had principles that you could understand and describe. He had the reputation of being Maverick Jr. during his days of running around with John McCain. John McCain's passing among the many ways that we're impoverished by it is it really seems to have left – uh, Lindsey Graham without that centering function, and he's really a moral compass. Yeah, well, yes, and he, and he's really kind of thrown in electorally. Um, like as long as these people want to be reelected, and and that's their highest priority, then they they go with the way the wind blows. And this is a shame. Um, so let me say anything else you want to highlight from the NDAA? Yeah, one other thing I want to flag. Uh, I wrote a big long piece yesterday for Lawfare about the. Indeed. national cyber director position that will be created by this NDAA. And this will happen sooner or later if it doesn't get through this time. Uh, this is a recommendation to the Cyber Solarium Commission. And it's really interesting because um, the the question of which institutions of our government do which things is a pretty complex one when it comes to cyber policy. I think the best way to understand the NCD position is that it amounts to not just a restoration, but a supersizing, empowerment, and entrenching of what had been the uh, special assistant to the president, president, uh, the cyber coordinator, which had been, you know, Michael Daniel, Rob Joyce. Um, that position famously was eliminated by John Bolton in 2018 for reasons that don't bear scrutiny. It's just a bad move. But rather than just awaiting the Biden administration to restore that central coordinating position that resides in the executive office of the president and not beholden to the equities of any one agency or department, the idea here is to take it and to perform similar functions and then some, give it the stature of a Senate-confirmed official, give it an actual large staff, I think in this case up to 75, and give it a battery of express statutory authorities that confirm that it is indeed supposed to be leading or participating on various functions. A lot of this stuff, again, the coordinator used to do, but without the stature, the staffing, and the statutory authorities, the big the big three of things starting with STA. Um, so this will involve, of course, presidential advisory functions, uh, management of the interagency process when confronted with significant cyber incidents. One thing that I think the commission wanted that the bill doesn't quite deliver is really making clear how central the national cyber director would be in driving and constantly updating and, and ensuring alignment with the national cyber strategy what you end up with is clearly a seat at the table and a chance to give advice and recommendations when the strategy and other national cyber policy matters are in play, but not quite a clear authority to drive those processes. But that's that's a, a minor complaint. Anyways, that's a good bit of good government. I hope it eventually happens or some version of it eventually happens. But again, thanks to the president's interest in Section 230 and this and that and the other, well, maybe we aren't going to see it, at least not anytime soon. All right, so there's a ton more to talk about, but we should save a minute here for frivolity. And we can take our next episode next week to talk more about the NDAA because there's there are a million other things in my notes. And, and, and we should say, and listeners, I mean, if there are specific things in the NDAA, you know, it's a big bill. And Bobby and I, I, I can't speak for Bobby, I have not read every page of it. So if there are specific things in the conference version of the NDAA that you would like us to address, by all means, hit us up. I've read a lot more of it than is healthy. I'll just say that. <laughs> so so my usual MO with the NDAA, Bobby, is I do a control F for all of the relevant yeah. either phrases or um, existing code provisions to see if they're being amended. I, right. I, so I used like, to do that just for Gitmo and for cyber and then sensitive military operations. But this time I actually sat down and I and I carefully reviewed Every section title highlighted all the ones that were wow. plausibly relevant for the things that interest me. And then I went through and parachuted into those sections to, to pour over them. Uh, not done yet, to say the least. Uh, and, and next week, I will talk about a, a complex tweak to the sensitive military cyber operations oversight framework, which is... 
there you an go. area that almost no one else seems to care about, but I, ju- I just love it. So man. that's not true. I just think it's, I just think it's very dense. It, it is, <laughs> like, but dense, like me, dense. But <laughs> what I was going to say was that if this if this podcast proves anything, it's that the uh, dense and lack of interest are not synonymous. Well, that's true. Yeah, thank you. Are you know? By hey, friends. Recently, we've had a steady amount of about eleven thousand plus listeners per week, which is awesome. Wow. Um, cool. Steve, I think I think by the end of twenty twenty one. It needs to be twenty thousand. That's the goal there. Think how many Good more, luck, buddy. How many more? <laughs> how many more minds we can corrupt? I, I mean, I, you know, I, if you said fifteen thousand, I'd say we can try. But um, the other thing that we're going to announce next week is we're going to do um, we're going to have some 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 charity driven events coming up for the end of the year. I, can't um, I forgot that. No, it's okay because we want to. We don't want to dump it at the end of the episode. So we're going to start next week by talking about ways that you can show your love for the podcast. Um, by supporting a good cause that isn't us. I'll give you one preview. Here's the hint. Co-host. And and I'll give you another preview. Raffle. (laughs) Awesome. Um, All right. You can probably figure it out from there, but just in case, we'll cover that at the beginning of Netflix episode. All right. So uh, what should we say about Mando and Grogu? Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so if you haven't seen last week's episode, I've been getting yelled at for spoiler alerts okay, all, right. all over the place. Tune out, tune out if you don't want to hear any Mandalorian uh, spoilers. All right, so I, with all that said, I had been under the impression, Bobby, perhaps the mistaken impression, that the Great Pit of Carcoon <laughs> was a pit from which one did not escape. It's filled with teeth and acid and digestive stuff. Right, and, the Sarlacc. But now, but we already knew that we already knew that Boba Fett got out, right? Because he was, you know, he was there two episodes back watching what was going on on Tatooine. Yeah, I had just I had just been hoping that maybe that was just a mirage, but I guess he really did survive. So, so apparently, the Great Pit of Carcoon, not so great, not so great. So, so Boba's out, and he comes back, and he is. I mean, you may say, oh. I, you may say I'm a dreamer in honor of the, uh, the passing of not the only John one. Lennon on this day. You may say I'm too tolerant of fan service episodes and that this one was heavy on fan service. I don't care. I loved it. I thought it was great getting to see Boba Fett actually really sort of earning the uh, the reputation and showing just how much butt he can kick. Really well done action, I thought. Well, and it makes me wonder how he was so easily bested by Luke Skywalker. Yeah, the force is strong with that kid. Um, and I thought Fennec, Fennec was was well done too. Uh, the uh, there were lots of good, as is often the case in this series, lots of good sort of subtle mockery of stormtrooper ineptitude. Um, we got to see some uh, some coloration on stormtrooper uh, armor that uh, calls back to the uh, to the cartoons, which was cool. You got to see a right, stormtrooper mortar that was interesting. Yep. Yeah, the Stormtrooper Mortar, I was like, wait, we're back to the 1950s? By the way, as they were all getting blown to pieces and or uh, just totally crunched up by Boba Fett the old-fashioned way, one of my kids walked in and said, wow, their armor is pretty worthless. I know, right? Like, has it ever in any episode ever at any point in the series ever done them any good? Maybe with more primitive civilizations? I guess. I mean, good heavens. Um, yeah, what else What else to say? The Razor Crest is done for. That was pretty great. Um, I guess now we've got like the. Uh, it was. Not, I mean, it's still like, but still like, we're still like inexorably moving slowly toward the next actual plot development. Right. Like, I I thought maybe after the reveal of Thrawn the previous week, we'd actually get like a glimpse of him this week, but no, 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 no never on this this deal. No, no, and in fact, it sounds we're all set for a prison bust caper because because Dora the Explorer yeah. plot devices, you know. Yep. You got to go through yep. the Rainbow Forest to cross the Crystal Bridge. So anyway, I'll, I'll watch it again, but I continue to be annoyed by the 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 tedium, the tedious pace of the plot development. Um, I could go. I, I'm in now. I already was pretty in, but if if we're gonna get more of Boba Fett swinging uh, his his stick and cracking stormtrooper armor, I am there for that. Absolutely. Um. All right. So. Um, should we turn to football really briefly and uh, the awesomeness that is the NFC East? You know, I'll just say congratulations. Uh, I think the Giants actually might actually turn out to be a, a dangerous, no one wants to play them kind of spoiler team. Because it, I mean, the def- it's the defense. The yeah, defense is really the starting really well. Good. The running game's not bad, improbably. Um, I think, you know, when you got we get we get we get Arizona this week at just the right time, the Cardinals are going in totally oh my the God, wrong direction. Yeah, the coaching issues there, not good. Um, 
how do you like, how do you like how do you like being a defensive coordinator in the in the NFL who gets fired because you made one wrong call on one play? Uh, you know, Greg Williams for the Jets. Yeah, I was actually watching that live on Red Zone, and I was like, "Wait, it looks like they're bringing the house. Why are you Don't bringing bring the, the house? house? Don't bring the house." Gambles can be very exciting when they work, and uh, they can cost you your job when they don't. Which I guess is why I, I think someone I don't know I don't know how someone figured this out, but someone tweeted that like since they've been tracking this stuff. It was the first all-out blitz in that situation. That is to say, um, a team down by three or more points inside the last minute. Like you know, it was the first all-out blitz in the comparable situation since they started tracking you know defensive alignments. Oh my God. <laughs> That's awesome. They'll never expect it. I mean, you see the logic of it. How you talk yourself into it. It's <laughs> they'll, they'll never can't... see it. They'll, ne- they'll never see it coming, which is only going to be a problem because since they'll never see it coming, they will definitely see the wide receiver who is wide open streaking down the far sideline. Um, come in, wait, come back to Mandalorian real quick. I just remember one scene. What, how'd you like it uh, when when uh, Grogu's in his little cell and they just have him in there intentionally You're having him exhaust like himself by he's, just he's crushing up the by beating us. It's like you feeling sleepy? <laughs> oh, you're feeling so sleepy. That was awesome. That was pretty great. Hi, right, man. So, so what's our episode? Is our episode title uh, uh, "Jumping the Kraken"? Jumping the Kraken. Episode one eighty six. Jumping the Kraken. I love it. All right. Um, oh boy, he's at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. In loco parentis is at En loco parents. I love it. Hey, um, that's a, that's good luck to y'all. That's really exciting. You guys are doing that. Um, Friend, just what I had. Friends, Romans, countrymen, spread the word about in loco parentis. Spread the word about the show too. I'm serious. Let's get this to twenty thousand. I don't know why we're not making money off of it. I we really say, ought to. So, so you know, when we were setting up the podcast, when we we're setting, when we we're getting like in loco parentis all set up, someone someone asked me, you know, well, you know, how do you and Bobby do? I was like, what do you mean? Like, well, how many, you know, how many listeners? Have? I was like, well, we've been averaging around ten or eleven thousand downloads. It's like, oh my god, you're doing great. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, well, you must be making money. I'm like, uh. uh. Um, <laughs> That's a thing. maybe one day i just you know i just don't want to talk about mattresses and harry's razors and all that sort of thing do you i mean you know if the mets want to sponsor us yeah, Steve Cohen, yeah, we're not, look austin beer work brought to you by the, the national the national security law podcast brought to you by austin east ciders and the New York Mets. Absolutely. You know, I am totally willing to do one of those like AM sports show things where you, you kind of trick your listener by not breaking tone or pace or anything. And you say like, you know, that totally reminds me. You mentioned Eastsiders. You know what's really great on a hot sunny day? A nice crisp. <laughs> I'm, I'm game. Hey, it's a product I actually support. Tell, tell the people what I'm wearing right now. Oh, hold on. I, I, I had the uh, Zoom video down. You've got, oh, you've got the Austin Eastsiders uh, uh, hoodie oh, East that, that I gave on. you for your birthday. Indeed. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. All right, everybody. So anyway, stay safe out there. Uh, mind the Kraken. And let's go Giants. Adios.